This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. Today, you are going to get a front row seat to the magnificent career of 1995 Rugby World Cup winner Mark Andrews. Mark, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. All right, before we begin the conversation, let's take a look at our trivia question for this week. In 2014, the Springboks beat New Zealand 27-25 at Ellis Park thanks to a late penalty. Who slotted that kick? Now, if you know the answer, you can put it in the comment section down below, and then we'll also find out if Mark knows the answer, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Mark, I'd like to begin in 1994 when you made your debut for the Springboks against England. The week before, we actually took quite a hammering against the English at Loftus. I'm interested to hear from you, what was the atmosphere like in the Bok camp that week? Well, as you correctly say, the week before, I was playing for the SAA side. And we played a game against the Bulls at Loftus. And the main game was the Springboks playing against England. And I actually played with my cousin, Keith Andrews, who's a Western Province uh, prop. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, we, I can still remember sitting on the main grandstand right at the top um, after the game. And as we started getting the hard end in that test match, he turned to me and he said, Hey, cuz, this is a good one to miss. Maybe we'll crack the nod next week. And I was like, Geez, uh, maybe. And then his goodness, I got a phone call the next Monday saying you're in the, the test side to play against England the next week in Cape Town. And I'll never forget, um, I hope it wasn't you, one of the journalists, but uh, one of the journalists had actually put that next side, test side, in the newspaper and they said, is this a joke? And there were six new inclusions. And when we walked into our hotel room in Cape Town, when we arrived there for the test match, Ian McIntosh, who was the coach then, had put that cutout on all our mirrors in our rooms where it said, is this team a joke? In other words, the selections. So happy to say we went on to beat England in, the, in my first test match um, at Newlands. I'm happy to tell you that I wasn't one of those journalists. I think I'm just a little bit too young uh, to have been a journalist at the time. Uh, so Mark, after that, it was off to New Zealand. I had Tian Strauss on the show, uh, gosh, it could be about 20 episodes ago now. Uh, and he actually told me that that was the toughest, toughest tour that he had ever been on. How did you experience it? No, absolutely. You know, in those days, we were amateurs. So, um, and I think New Zealand, we were the first Springbok side to go since the 1981 uh, flower bomb test and all the, the protests. Uh, so when we arrived there, we were welcomed, um, but also the New Zealand public were determined and the rugby fraternity were determined that we would not succeed in that tour. There was still quite a lot of animosity about the Springboks and there was like a love-hate relationship then. I think it still continues today, but they made that tour incredibly hard. I think we were there for 12 weeks um, in total. And they trucked us and shipped us and bussed us from the North Island to the South Island, to the North of the South Island, to the South of the North Island, to the West Coast, to the East Coast, all the time. We never spent more than three days in any place. We played the midweek games, um, I think eight midweek games we played. Um, I remember arriving at certain training fields and we'd ask for a scrum machine. They gave us a scrum machine, but no pads. So you couldn't use a scrum machine. We arrived for training sessions. In those days, the host um, union would provide all the, the training equipment, the rugby balls, the tackle shields, and that. And probably two or three times we arrived, and there were no rugby balls. So we arrived for a training session to play against Auckland or Otago, whatever, and the training session, there were no balls. So eventually, we, our manager went out and bought our own balls, bought all our own stuff, 
tackle bags, the rest of it. And then we trucked that to every single training field after that. And that really made things difficult for us. That's incredible. So shortly after that, Ian McIntosh was out and Kitch Christie came in. Uh, I know that it was still very early on in your Springbok career, but you did play a lot of rugby, especially for the Sharks under, under Mac. What would you say are the differences that you experienced between the two men and their coaching philosophies? Yo, how long is this podcast? Or how long is this interview going to go? Because that's one hell of a question. So Ian McIntosh obviously was a, a, um, a, a Natal coach, a Sharks coach. Um, and when you play for a coach in your provincial setup, you earn the respect of the coach and you kind of have a closer working relationship. Um, so under Mac, the Natal boys he liked, um, we were always the, the smaller union playing against the big boys in those days. So we were always on the back foot and uh, we just had to fight a little bit harder in every single game. So Mac backed us, backed me as a, as a player. Kitch came along and uh, I remember with Mac, you called Mac, Mac. Hey Mac, like, what are we? And... Um, we were at uh, Wanderers at my first training session and Kitsch Christie called me across and uh, he'll say something to me. I said, okay, thanks, Kitsch. When he stopped, he said, hey, don't you ever call me Kitsch again. My name is Coach or Mr. Christie. Don't ever stuff it up. I remember walking away thinking, geez, this is going to be a whole different environment. And it was. The Transvaal guys or then the, the, the Lions players were his boys. Um, and you can see the Springbok side in the 95 World Cup. I think there were 13 Transvaal players. He just went to the players that he knew and backed. Um, it was only James Small, Jibba, and myself with the Natal boys in the side, and we were honestly, like, we had to just stay on the outside. So I, I didn't, I must say, I didn't really enjoy playing for Kitch because I had no relationship with him. It was, I was just, just one of the outside players. He had a very strong relationship with the Transvaal players. He used to joke with them. But um, I remember in 94, the end of year tour, we were about to play against Swansea, I think, and they were the world champions. And he called me across and he said to me, listen, I know you think that you're the incumbent lock, but you aren't. My two locks are Hannes and Quivis. So unless you perform in this game, you're out of my test side. And that was it. So I had no, it wasn't a happy relationship I had with Kitsch, um, especially then when he changed me from lock to eighth man in the semi-final final. I think I disliked him more. Wow. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment because I want to hear from you about 1995, the Rugby World Cup. Just before that, I've heard so many stories about the fitness drills. Tell me about that. What did Kitsch put you guys through? <laughs> it's hard to explain. I, I, in, in the modern days, uh, no one goes to the army anymore. So uh, we had quite a few of the guys who'd been in the army, had been in the parabats, and, and they were renowned for, for going through some some training. They all said that it was a pretty walk in the park compared to what Kitsch put us through. And I'll never forget, we trained our last training session before the World Cup final at Megawatt Park in Joburg at the Eskom um, field. And there's a steep bank down the one side. And this is the Tuesday before we're playing against the All Blacks in the World Cup final on Saturday. And Kitsch made us do hill sprints, sit-ups and push-ups up and down that bank for half an hour at the end of practice just to get fit. You can't get fit in four days before you play. You've been training like, I mean, I, I can still remember training sessions pushing the green mamba scrum machine behind Wanderers from the one side to the other side, and you could only move it about half a meter each scrum. I can remember Doc having to strap my shoulders, the blood was just seeping through my jerseys, and he just had, there, there was just no give. Um, it was brutal, it really was. We'd finish every single training session with a 
what he called the half hour power. So you train for two hours and then you're going to do a fitness afkak for half an hour of dumbbells, step-ups, push-ups, laying up, stand. Um, it, it was just brutal. It was absolutely brutal. I think it's one of the reasons why so many of the older players' careers came to an end within the year after that World Cup. I think there were only probably seven of us still playing rugby because the majority of the guys, their bodies just, what we went through in 95 was just brutal. So tell me the story then behind your switching to eighth man ahead of that semi-final against the French. <laughs> it was it was probably one of the, the, the lowlights and highlights of my sporting career in that um, we, were, we were staying at the Sunnyside Hotel in Johannesburg and we just played against Samoa. We'd given a couple of days off. We went home for three days. Um, Joel Stransky was my roommate and uh, we flew back and I remember we were lying in the room and uh, next thing the phone rang. We, we just got cell phones in those days. This thing still happened by your by your hotel phone. And Joel picked it up and he was like, uh, yes, Mornay. Um, yes, Mornay, Mark's here. Um, okay, I'll tell him. Okay, I'll tell him to come to your room. Put the phone down. Now, on the Sunday night, if you were in the test side and management called you to their room, it meant that you were going to get dropped because they would tell you before they had the breast thing on Monday morning. If you weren't in the side and they called you to come to the manager's room, that meant that they were going to break the good news to you that you were, you'd were make it in the test side. <laughs> so you can imagine, just bad against tomorrow in the quarterfinal, won it, and I get called on Sunday night to go to morning, morning to his room. And I'll never forget, walking down that passage, and I had that feeling, I always joke, I had that feeling like an old schoolboy and you've been caught doing something and you're walking down that passage to the headmaster's office and you know you're going to get a caning. Walked in, I stood in front of his door and I was just like thinking, geez, like, is this the end of my World Cup dream? Is this like my family all coming up for, for the semi-final to Durban was and um, even though we were in Joburg and I was like, oh. then she knocked on the door and come in and the door open the door and I'll never forget there was Mona Duplessis sitting on the one side Kiss Christie in the middle and then Casey Pino was sitting on the side he was our backline coach and uh, Kitsch not been one to mince his words he looked at me and he called me Marky in a diminutive I don't know why I was Marky I was one of the biggest guys on the side but he called me Marky so he looked at me and he said Marky can you play flank I looked at him I was like no, coach, no, I can't play flank. Now, I remember we had Ruben Kruger, one of the greatest, hardest flankers in world rugby, and Francois Pinal captain the other flank. So, like, were they going to drop Ruben? Like, I didn't quite understand the question. I said, no, coach, I, I can't play flank. He said, are you sure? And I started to think, yeah, no, I can't play flank. Sorry, coach, I've never played it before. So it's a pity. Okay, you can go. I'm like, what the hell was all that about? I walked out, walked back to the passage, and I was confused. Walked in the room, and Joel sat up in the bed, and he said, and? I said, geez, Joel, I don't know. What do you mean? Like, he said, but are you in a yard? I said, I don't know. So what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, coach asked me if I can play flank. He said, what did you say? I said, no. He went, oh. I said, well, what, what, what do you mean, oh? He said, hey, Mark, you know he wants to play Kubis and Hannes. It's always been his main locks. He's basically gave you an option to play flank in, in the side, either come off the bench or like, even though we didn't have bench players in, play a bit on flank. And you said no. And I was like, oh, geez, I'll stuff that on. Anyway, I was sitting on the bed, still trying to absorb everything that happened. And next thing the phone rang again. Morning, Joel, Joel, yes, he's still there. Yes, I'll send him. 
So obviously, what, I mean, what do you think? Now nah, I've said now nah, I can't play a flank. Uh, so they're going to break the bad news to me that I've been dropped. Bought on their passage. Now nah, it's like same feeling, but now you know you need expelled by the headmaster and get a cane. Knocking that door, open up. Same like sitting there. And uh, kid says to me, Mikey, can you play it, man? Now what is joke? I said, I know I'm a tight forward and supposed to be doff, but I'm not that doff. I said, yeah, okay, I can play it, man. So he goes, can you really play it, man? I, it, man. So I said, yeah, I played it at school. And I was proper. My favorite position. And he turned around to Mona and he said, and, and I've, I've discussed this with Mona and he vaguely remembers it, but he's not 100% sure the memory. Obviously, it's a huge thing in my life. It wasn't so much in his. And he tapped Mona in the leg and he said, Mona, I told you. Look, man. He said, you were a great springback eighth man. He said, Mark's built like you. He says, Mark, you, you're going to be a great eighth man. I said, gosh, I'll be a great eighth man. It's okay. Thanks, man. So I'm not a bad luck either. He said, thanks. Walked out, closed the door, and I was like, Jesus, now what's just happened? You know, walked down the passage, get back. Now I don't know what's like, what do you think? I walk in, Joel's pacing around the room. He's even sitting in his bed now. I walk in, he goes, like his face. He goes, and? I said, I don't know, Joel. He says, Joel, what do you mean you don't know? Are you in the side of your other side? Are you playing? I said, Joel, I don't know. He said, well, what happened? I said, well, the coach asked me if I can play with man. He said, what did you say? I said, yes. He said, can you? I said, no. He said, well, why do you say yes? I said, Charlie, you told me he's not going to play me lock. He's going to play Anderson Kerbis. I already said, no, I can't play flank. So I've got other positions. I, the eighth man, so I said, yes. Choose God. The next morning, they announced the Springbok side of play against France in the World Cup for a semi-final. And Mark Andrews is eighth man. I nearly cocked myself. <laughs> so I actually went after, after they announced it at breakfast. They announced it, the, the, the side. Um, I can still remember, like, guys, like, turning around in their chairs, like, looking at me like they just realized who the team kleptomaniac was. Like, so he's eighth man. And I was, I was like, I was like dumbfounded. And I actually walked up to, to Kitch and my nerve broke. And I went to him and I said, Coach, I've got to be honest. But but I said, I've got to be honest. I last played eighth man under 15. So I, I don't really know how to play eighth man. And he went, you know what? You'll be great. And he said, guys, we'll leave for training half an hour later. Uh, Rudolph, Francois um, and Ruben and Mornay. We're just going to work with Mark and go through all the moves off the back of the scrums and the lineouts. Thanks. And that is it. Ended up playing the semi final against France. And he said to me, it's only against the French because they had uh, Benazi, the eighth man, they had Olivier Ruma, they had Merle, they had Caban, four jumpers, and we only had me because it was myself and Kurbis. And Kurbis wasn't announced to be the biggest jumper in the world. So it was basically just me, I mean, and Rudolph was a big boy. So he wanted to get guys in the lineups. He wanted to bring in Hannes. So he said to me, just for the semi-final. And then it worked so well by default. Not that any other. And for the final, he had the same chat with me. I was like, Coach, please. You can't. You can't. He said, Mark, they'll never expect it. They'll think it's a ploy, and it's going to work. And I think it's fair to say that it worked out quite well, Mark. Um, so just talk to me about the final, right? I've asked this of quite a few uh, guests that I've had on the show before, especially guys that were around in 95 and played in that final. I've watched it back quite a few times, right? And it's my opinion that we actually looked quite comfortable in that final. The All Blacks, I think, broke through a first-time tackle maybe only twice in the entire match. And I think both of those were like in the first maybe 20, 25 minutes. Playing in the match, did you guys feel or did you feel that you guys were in control? So, I've never watched that game, ever in my life. I've never watched, I've never, 
I've, I've never, I've probably watched clips when I walk into functions and the game was on TV or something, but I've never sat down and watched it because for me, it's still in my memory. I don't want to tarnish the memory that I have because when you see it, I probably wasn't as good or I was worse than I thought I was ever. So it, the game is still in my mind and it's as I recall it, not as what I've seen, seen it. So I'll tell you one thing. Getting off that bus before as you arrived there at this park. You got off that bus and I remember the All Blacks had arrived just before us and we had to wait for them to walk through as protocol and, and manners dictate. So I, I'm hyperactive at the best of times. So I was off the bus standing on the side waiting to go to the train gyms, but our security were holding us in the All Blacks get off their bus, which was 20 meters away. And I remember staring and seeing Ian Jones. And he looked back over like his shoulder at us. And I probably imagined it, but it looked like there was like this uncertainty. And Ian Jones was one of like my heroes but when I was a at, and at school and watching him play. And he had this, just this kind of, like almost this uncertainty about looking over his shoulder at us. And I was like, they don't think they can beat us. And just on that kind of thing, and, and, and for me, it was a mental thing. Kish Christie had always said, they're going to be as fit as we are. They're going to be as strong as we are. We have to believe that we will beat them. And we have to believe it more than they do. And I honestly believe, you know, you take the Nelson Mandela and you take everything that happened in that World Cup. And people talk about destiny and you have a destiny. I think it is our destiny to win. It is it was, there was just too much in play for us. And it almost felt like the result was going to be besides what we did because it was, I don't know, it sounds a little bit corny, but I really felt that. I felt that we just had to run in that field, give everything, and we would win. Didn't know to come down to a drop by Joel right in the end. But anyway, we, I just think we had the greater belief. I'm going to speak to Ian Jones um, years after we did an interview together. And he said it was unfair because on that day, we had 16 players in the field. We had Madiba, and they didn't. So he was saying that moment of them meeting him on the field right in the final was quite awe-inspiring for a lot of them and kind of rattled them a bit. It was like the moment was bigger than, than they expected it to be, and it took them out of their zone, but it put us in the zone like, we, we're going to win this. Not that any of us are going to complain about that, Mark. Uh, tell me, what does it feel like when the referee blows the final whistle and you are a rugby world champion? I don't know. It's still like, a bit surreal. Eh? Um, as I say, I've never watched that game. It's my whole life changed after that. Changed financially. The game went professional. I signed a contract where... I mean, I tell people this and, and people just kind of seem a bit stunned. And I'll say, how much do you think that we got paid for winning the World Cup in 1995? Let me ask you, how much do you think we got paid? I mean, I always thought it was something along the lines of 30,000 rand a month in those days. So for being one of the players that was involved in the 95 World Cup final and winning it, I think we earned 4,700 rand. Oh, wow. And then I even got investigated by SARS because... <laughs> They heard that the game had gone professional and I'd had zero tax returns because I, did, I was a student at that stage. And I actually remember being investigated by SARS because I hadn't declared all this money that everybody was saying that we'd earned. 4,700 rand. 
is what I've got paid. And it wasn't actually a payment. It worked out to be my daily rate during the World Cup in 1995 that we got as amateurs. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just surreal. And you ask the question about what does it feel like that whistle goes in your world champion? Nothing really changed for me besides how other people saw me. Um, and, and, and that is probably the hardest thing to deal with. Uh, like instant fame is pretty hard for a farm boy familiar to deal with overnight. Speaking of uh, things that are hard to deal with, let's go into 1996 and 1997. Uh, Andre Markroff became the coach. The first sort of half of that year was quite difficult. A lot of inconsistent results. Then obviously he dropped Francois Pinard and we went on that end of year two and we had a really, really good run of results there. But then he was out. Carl Duplessis came in and again, inconsistent results. We lost to the British and Irish Lions. We got a hiding in New Zealand. But then we gave the Wallabies a hiding in what was uh, his final test match at uh, Loftus. How frustrating was that period for you? So people often ask me what I consider my greatest achievement as a Springbok rugby player. And everybody thinks the World Cup 95. And it was, but that wasn't anything to do with me, really. I was just one little cog, one little part in that whole, on the whole cog. For me, I want to say my, my most impressive part about my career, the thing I'm proud of the most, is the fact that I was able to play under six different Springbok coaches and everyone expected me to play in a different role and to play in a different way. I mean, the only thing I regret in my career is that I never got to play under one or two coaches my whole career. I mean, I was at 29 years of age, I was told that I had nothing left to offer South African rugby and, and I left the country. The Sharks told me the same thing. So at 29, where I look at players in the last two decades, where, they, where they've been managed and looked after and... I mean, I think I missed three games uh, after 95. So 95, 96, 97, I think I missed three games. And that's it. Um, we were played week in, week out. My liquor players now we get a, a springback cap for two minutes in the field or seven minutes. Um, the majority of my first I don't know, 30 test matches, I think it was, you couldn't leave the field unless you had a cut or injured. So, I mean, my game time, and I was, I was broken, but there was... But I, under every new coach, I had to prove myself. And then, as you say, I mean, I ended up being called as a subpoenaed as a witness um, by Saru against uh, Carl Dupassi in, in their court, in their the issue. I mean, that's not great for a player. And now you've got the new coach taking over and he's stolen this oak while sitting, giving testimony against this coach. But you get subpoenaed. I mean, I think it's the only time I flew business class in those days internally was when they wanted... Sora wanted me to come out of Cape Town and sit in a court thing and give witness. They flew me business class and sent a car to fetch me. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was, it, we had some great times after that with Nick Bennett came in um, with Tash as our captain. We went those 17 test matches unbeaten. It was a phenomenal time. I mean, I was incredibly blessed to be part of that 95 World Cup side, um, the, the era of that 17 test matches, and also the Shark side of the 90s. I mean, I played with some incredibly talented and phenomenal rugby players. I was very blessed. As you say, Nick Mallet then came in and you went on that amazing run, 17 tests unbeaten. What was it that Mallet brought to the table that made the difference? I'll never forget, after the Carl debacle, um, myself, Juba, Tash, uh, James, most of the top players, we basically said, we're not going to play box again. There was just too much politics. There was too much... Um, if they weren't going to give us proper coaches, got to compete, um, 
losing against the Lions, and they, with respect, weren't the best Lions side that left uh, their shores. Um, but we were in such disarray. We were an incredibly unhappy side. So Mallet came along, and I never forget, he flew down and he took us for coffee at, uh, I think, the Alangini Hotel, the beachfront, to this Juba, Tash, myself, Garth, um, Henry Honeyball, I think the other guys, Dickie Muir. And he said, guys, I know you're frustrated. I know you don't want to be part of this setup, but I need you. South African rugby needs you. Let's go and make the box great again. Let's just go and, and just go and play rugby and let's just play it like it's supposed to be. And he convinced us that we were going to have, have a say in how we were played. We were going to be treated with respect as players. And, and, and he, he started like that. He was phenomenal. I mean, we, he brought in this fresh of, of this breath of fresh air as far as the coach goes. Um, we had a lot of fun. It, it was just, it was old school rugby again, where you played for your mates um, and you played for each other. And I think that showed in our 17, 17 unbeaten games. And talk to me about the 1999 Rugby World Cup. What was your experience like of that tournament? I sometimes wonder, maybe I should go to book because I realized when you ask all these questions, she's was around for a long time and through a lot of drama. Um, yeah, that wasn't pleasant, eh? Uh, he dropped Tash. I got dropped before the 9-9. Um, we had a very unhappy side. Um, there was a clear favoritism to the Western Province players and, and certain players in that setup. Um, there were double standards in the side as far as how players were treated. And in a team, in a team sport, you can't have double standards. You treat your captain the same way you treat the bench player. I mean, you, you have to be consistent as a coach. And, and he wasn't. And, and he'd lost his we were embroiled in, in contract negotiations. Some players, they were offering 10 grand a month, some 40, some folks were on huge contract. It was just a mess. Um, and it wasn't about the rugby because it was all about power plays between Saru, Rianal Balza, Mallet, um, his management. It was just a very unpleasant time. The players were, every player felt like he had a toggle on his back unless you were certain province players. So it just was very unhappy. I mean, after the one, one test match in London, Scotland, uh, I'm not sure who we played, we actually had a team meeting of senior players with the players and banned the management from the meeting. And we sat down and certain players were like, I don't want to play anymore. If this is the way Mallet's going to play, I want to play, I'm going to play. Um, and it was a very unpleasant, but what it did do is it pulled us all together because then we as players were like, okay, we, we've got to back each other here because our management are trying to divide us. Um, and again, sad because if I look at the 95 World Cup, how hard that was to win the sides we played against, um, especially the semi-final and the final, probably one of the greatest all-black sides for a very long time at that stage. I mean, the Lomo and the Andrew Mertens, they were just phenomenal. And then um, 99, the all-blacks were the weakest they'd been forever. The Australians weren't great. Um, yeah, it, 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 was a, it was a World Cup that we should have won. We should have won easily. Yeah, it's a tremendous shame what ended up happening. And then Mallard was obviously gone in 2000, replaced by Harry Fulhoun. I want to hear a little bit about the Fulhoun approach from you, because I had Devet Barry on the show a while back, and he uh, mentioned uh, how much the players enjoyed wearing the fancy suits and the fancy shoes, and you guys were all treated like CEOs. What was your experience like of that? I loved Harry Fulhoun. Harry Fulhoun coached us for a short while um, at, in the Sharks. I just loved the way Harry Fulhoun approached life. Nothing was a problem. Nothing was couldn't be solved with the right attitude and the right input. I mean, he was just he was just probably way before his time as far as professional rugby goes. 
Um, he was still trying to drag Saru and Sarfu, I don't know what they call themselves now, but trying to drag them out of the Dark Ages, the board, all the guys. I mean, there was still a huge amount of resentment from most of the presidents of the unions that the players were earning so much money and they kind of played for free and had put all this effort in for nothing. So um, Harry came in and was like, stuff you have, much for the money. I don't need your money, but I just want to make the Springboks incredible again. And uh, unfortunately, I think Harry was just way ahead of his time. Um, and he was. I mean, he created a, a, the, the players' board we, we sat on. We were involved in a whole, that senior players, a whole lot of decisions that were we were excluded from in the years um, before that. And he was phenomenal. Just, just the way he's, he's, he coached, his zest for life. He's, remember, we played against Argentina and he said, right, guys, we're not going to kick the ball. We're going to prove to the world, because there was a whole kind of thing that the Springboks kind of kick and chase and they just kick the ball away. He said, we're not going to kick the ball in Argentina. We nearly lost the batting game because the Argentinians soon worked out that we weren't kicking the ball. So they just changed the way, put us under huge pressure. But, but, but he was ready for like that. He just said, guys, we have to be confident of the ball in hand. We can't think we kick ourselves out of trouble all the time. We've got to, got to carry the ball out of trouble. And we've got to carry the ball because when you score a try, you've got to have the ball in hand. Um, and he was just phenomenal and things like that. Where, where it was it, it was wild to say in a test match you can't kick the ball, no matter what happens. Um, yeah, but I, I really enjoyed Harry. I thought he was phenomenal. Um, again, sadly, just politics and and the media criticism of him and, and what he was trying to do eventually got to him. And he just backed up and walked away, which was sad for me. So who was your toughest opponent? Well, I was going to sound corny, but... I think if any athlete really asks that question themselves, they'll say themselves. Because to try and get up for every game, every weekend, and to be switched on and perform is incredibly hard. And the only person who stops you performing is yourself. You either allow distractions to come into your life, whether it's, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, so for me, the, my, my hardest opponent was myself. I better to play the less important games. I think I played against the All Blacks 19 times and I would have played against the All Blacks every week of my career if I could have. That just brought the best out of me. Playing against the English, I mean, I, I, I just love playing those tough games. But playing an easier game, I battled. I battled to get myself up for the game. Um, so I was probably my hardest opponent to keep myself consistently performing. But on the rugby field, as the, as the, the, the people I played against, there were lots. Eh? Um, Ian Jones was, even though I didn't always compete against him in the line outs, just as another lock, he was a phenomenal athlete. Uh, John Eels was, again, um, how he played rugby, I don't know, because he didn't have an aggressive bone in his body. He was an absolute gentleman. When I retired, he wrote me a lovely letter. Um, he was just a gentleman. He was just an, a phenomenal, but incredibly talented. Uh, had a rugby brain second to none was a hard guy to play against, especially in the line-outs, the kickoffs, the way he played. On um, the physical side, Martin Johnson. Um, Robin Brook was a tough guy in the All Blacks, also one of the, the kind of enforcers of their side. Martin Johnson, the England lock was the same. Um, Olivia Rumar, I only played against him for, for a few tests. I eventually played with him at the Sharks. Phenomenal. I learned so much from him. Um, but the... Uh, the, the I think it was Murray, the, the Irish lock, um, was a great athlete. So there were, you know, I think if I, if I look back in, in my, my generation, there were some world-class locks that I was lucky enough to play against. 
Absolutely. So, Mark, let's take a look at the trivia question again quickly. In 2014, the Springboks beat New Zealand 27-25 at Ellis Park thanks to a late penalty. Who slotted that kick? Do you know the answer, Mark? I think it's either Mornay Stein or it was, Fran- it was France... Um, well, I'd say Mornay Stein. All right, that's not a bad guess. Uh, the correct answer is actually a little bit closer to home when you think from a Sharks point of view. Patrick Lambie. You are kidding me. Patrick Lambie. Patrick Lambie slotted. I think it was the 78th minute. Yeah, Mornay Stein. But that's 2014. That's way after, after I retired, so that doesn't count. You've got to ask me why during my, gener- during my era. Absolutely. Mark, let me say it was a lovely, lovely time having you here on Front Row Rugby. A real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Absolute pleasure. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Last time on Front Row Rugby, I had another Andrews on the show, Eddie, the 2004 Tri-Nations winner. You can go and have a look at that video. It's appearing on your screen right now. Next time, I'll have Mark's cousin Keith on the show. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.